Yeah. Ninja. Hey, uh, thank you guys. Thank you from Humble House for sharing. This is just beautiful. It's wonderful work that you're doing. And uh, just, uh, I think it would be good for us to keep in mind uh, this activity and this work in our community, being praying for them and uh, seeing how we can support that. That's the kingdom of God advancing in this world. That's what this is all about. Uh, reaching, we were singing about it this morning, reaching broken broken people and restoring and, and, and bringing out the beauty that God always knew was there but uh, gets diffused because of the brokenness of this world. Well, we had a great Easter, um, uh, but now we're going to jump right back into our study in the Gospel of John this morning. Um, and uh, I noticed you guys were having to rush from Humble House. I'm sorry about that, Janelle. I saw you were kind of rushing through. This is my fault because I'm constantly saying, hey, we got to you know, shorten everything. And my message is really long today, and I'm very sorry. But look, I got to take a deep breath here and realize... You guys are probably okay, right? I promise we won't do that all the time, but I just want to not be breathing heavily and, 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 and racing through this. So uh, we're going to get into our study. Uh, if you've got a Bible, if you'll head over to John chapter 4, please. Last time we, we finished up chapter 3 with the account of John the Baptist's remarkable response to Jesus' increased attention that his ministry was receiving, uh, exceeding John the Baptist. And we saw how his submission to Jesus's plan actually set him free from being ruled by ego. And we considered what that would mean for our own lives. Now today we're going to come to a, another fairly famous story where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman and her life is revolutionized by that encounter. Uh, we've talked about how in John's gospel there is a theme of replacement. We see it happening over and over again. We see it emerging in the story. We're currently in a section uh, in this gospel that's organized around the institutions of Israel, chapters 1 through 4, where we find Jesus replacing the institutions that were often used to define Jewish identity for them. So we've read about Jesus confronting the ritual of purification in Cana when he changed water, the purification waters into wine. Uh, we've seen him go into the temple and replace the temple with himself. He's instructed a rabbinical teacher, Nicodemus, on the deeper things of God. And today we're going to read about a, a traditional well that was associated with one of Israel's patriarchs, Jacob, Jacob's well. Jesus replaces what those institutions offered with a messianic abundance. And all of it is pointing towards this new life available to us as God's people. What God intended for us, beyond tradition, beyond institutions, what God intended relationally with us. We'll see how it all plays out as we get into it, but I want you to keep those concepts in mind as we're going through this passage of Scripture. So if you're there in John chapter 4, we're going to begin uh, with verse 1. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than uh, John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. And I suppose there's stuff we should drill down in that, but I'm not sure that I want to get into it because I'm not exactly sure I understand that. Anyway, verse 3, so he left Judea, returned to Galilee, and he had, got, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Once again, we're going to stop there for a second. I want to explain that it's hard to pinpoint this chronologically in the story of the Gospels. Um, I consider it more of a literary way of getting us to the next section, the next institution of Judaism. That doesn't mean that it's not 
true or historically accurate, but John doesn't seem to be that concerned with the chronological timeline of this. John is telling a different kind of story. John is teaching theology in story form, and that's what we have to keep in mind in this. So to, in the story, to avoid Pharisaic pressure, Jesus heads back to Galilee, and on his way home, he and his disciples are passing through Samaria, and that's a region just directly north of Judea, where he was in the last section here. So verse 5, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sikar, near the, village, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Okay, real quick, modern scholars believe that what John identifies as Sikar here is what is now known as Shechem. It's near the border between Samaria and Judea. And so as they get to this town... You know, the disciples probably say to Jesus, you wait here, we're going to go into town, see if there's a Taco Bell or something, and we can get something to lunch. It says that Jesus is tired from the trip, so there we see his full humanity. Jesus is fully God, fully human, and here's his humanity on display. He's tired, it's noon, it's really hot and dry. So he grabs a seat in the shade to wait for them to come back. Now, Jacob's Well is, is one of those sites that archaeologists actually agree on. It's, it's interesting. It's in Samaria to this day. There's a Greek Orthodox church that's been built around it. So Jesus waits there in some shade. We know that in antiquity there was a structure around the well. So he's thirsty and he's hot and this lady comes to the well to get water and he asks her to get some water for him too. And so that's the setup for the story. That's what sets everything up that's about to take place, the conversation. And I think the rest of this just has to be read as a whole uh, to get the flow of the conversation. It's a delightful conversation. It goes back and forth, and there's some twists in it there that aren't obvious on the surface. But we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go back in and see what we can glean from it. Uh, so remember, Jesus has just asked this woman for a drink. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, and who's speaking to you, you'd ask me, and I'd give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How do you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. "I, I I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Um, So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father's looking for those who worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. That's where we'll stop today. There's a big chunk to have to read, but to me, we just had to get the sweep of the story on that, get caught up in it. This, by the way, is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has in any of the Gospels. So it's a, this little vignette is so delightful to me because it's so wrong. And I don't mean that it's inaccurate in, in some way, but it would have been considered completely inappropriate for a first century Jewish person uh, in that culture. Everything that goes down here is wildly scandalous. This is God's Messiah just boldly coloring outside of the lines in this. Now, for our modern American culture, we look at this and, you know, we don't see it. Nothing untoward happens here. What's the big deal on this? Well, here are the problems. She's a woman. No Jewish man, especially one considered to be a rabbi, a holy man, would talk to a female stranger in public. Orthodox Jewish men would not do this to this day. If she was going to be addressed, it would be through the man who had authority over her, either her father or her husband. That was the culture. I'm not saying it's right. Clearly, Jesus didn't abide by that. But that's just the way it was in, in, that, in that time, in that, in that uh, situation. So, uh, so take note, then, of the issues that are emerging in this little story. Issues that really end up being timeless, but actually quite pressing even for modern readers. I mean, we can look right here at the issues of gender equality that jump out at us. Not only is she a woman, she was Samaritan, considered by the Jewish people of Jesus's day to be the devil's people. In fact, they were called the devil's people. Uh, sounds like a good name for a band, but either way. <laughs> they were considered to be unclean and impure. So we also have the issue of racial and cultural prejudices at work in this. Why was there this animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans? There's a long history for it. Uh, let me just try to encapsulate it very quickly. But 700 years before Jesus' time, there was a civil war in Israel and the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went and established their own form of Judaism with its own temple and their own practices. And then after that, the Assyrian Empire came through, destroyed them, deported all of the people that were there and filled the, the territory back up with Gentile people from other nations that they had conquered. So by Jesus's day, the Samaritans were a hybrid Jewish Gentile group who, who had a form of Judaism, but it was their own religious customs and practices. And by Jesus's time, Samaritans were treated with contempt by the Jewish people. And that contempt was returned by the Samaritans. So it was simply cultural and ethnic prejudice on display. So she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, 
And then she's got this questionable marital history, uh, currently unmarried. So we, we recognize she's trying to survive in, in, in a perilous economic state. So then we've got another issue of economic insecurity. All of these things that were at play here, but all of it couched in things that would have been red flags for, for a first century Jewish male under normal circumstances. But none of it seems to matter to Jesus in this story. And you think about it. This story is not written in our day. This story is written back then in the midst of these intense cultural pressures. Jesus doesn't. He sees her. He recognizes her plight. He speaks friendly words to her. Remember the purpose of John's gospel. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And here another startling picture of God emerges for us. And there's these layers of messages that come through this conversation. We, and we see the repeated themes. We've been seeing it. And, and keep your eyes open, your ears open as we're going through John. Here's a repeated theme of water and of light and of dark. Because like, remember, Nicodemus came to meet Jesus in the middle of the night. But here this woman meets Jesus in midday. In Cana, Jesus took uh, ordinary purification water and turned it into wine. And here in this case, Jesus offers a replacement for the waters of tradition with an offer of new life. So what I observe first and foremost in this story is that because of the details of this woman's life, we realize that a new life in God is not constrained by social or cultural barriers. The fact that the woman comes to the well at noon is telling. The, the well was a long way from the town, and normally people would, would go and visit that well in either the early morning hours or late afternoon hours. You want to avoid the, the heat of the day. In fact, the place would be empty in the middle of the day when it's hot. Because the well was also a gathering place. It was a place where especially women of the community would gather and it was a social connection. So this woman clearly wants to avoid that. Why? Because of what Jesus reveals about her, her marital history, we can imagine she was probably the subject of gossip in that town, an object of shame within the community. It's interesting to me that commentators are quick to assign an immoral character to her, uh, but nothing in the text actually suggests that at all. In fact, we can imagine a whole lot of different reasons for her not, for her having so many husbands. Jesus even told a parable one time, if you remember, about a woman who loses seven husbands uh, through death. I mean, there's all, she could have lost husbands because of illness or death, but the other thing not to forget in this story is that women in that time and culture had no legal right to divorce a man. She, if she was married, she was stuck in that until something changed from the man's standpoint. So that means that this dear woman faced rejection multiple times from men if, if, the divorce, if it was a case of divorce or she was painfully abandoned either through death or just leaving her. We don't know the real reasons for this woman's marital history or why she lands with a man who doesn't seem to care enough about her to marry her. Maybe there's a level of moral resignation here. We could, we could be hard-pressed to blame her for that. But maybe it was just that or die of starvation because a woman on her own was extremely vulnerable in that time and place. It's always pointed out how Jesus never judges her in this. And maybe the most obvious reason that he doesn't judge her in this is that he sees her plight 
not some immorality to judge. But just imagine, I mean, all we have to do is, you know, use our imagination just a little bit to realize how the, the rumors would have been circulating about this woman, the whispers that would have been happening. I mean, it's not that hard to imagine. Readers of this story have been judging her for ages as we look at it. She has everything going against her except Jesus. Jesus sees her and he talks to her as though she's family. She was hiding from the town in shame and she ran right into God's amazing grace. Jesus freely offers her a new life, a living water to replace the waters of tradition, a water that will truly satisfy. So when Jesus is talking about living water. It's a motif, and it appears again and again in the Scriptures, not just in the Gospel, but in the New Testament. It's referring to this new Holy Spirit-empowered life, a whole and satisfied life that isn't dependent on circumstance or position, but it's secured in God's love for us, the knowledge that we are loved, loved by the one who made us, loved by the one who knows us best. This story is, is telling us that there is no barrier that keeps God's grace from coming to us and renewing us. He might meet us right where we are, no matter where we are. I mean, I feel like, Robert, we were singing about that this morning, I, I, if I'm not mistaken. Jesus didn't tell this woman, okay, you know, I, uh, you go get your act together, you know, fix this, and we'll talk about getting a new life for you. I mean, when we think like that, when anyone thinks like, you know, I just got to get my act together and I'll come to God. That's like, you know, that's like having, you know, somebody says, you're, you're really, really sick if you've seen a doctor. And you say, well, no, I'm waiting to get better. I don't want my doctor to see me like this. That's insanity. <laughs> None of her circumstances was a barrier to God's grace. Not our past, not our present not our status, no matter what anyone else may think about us, God's grace moves beyond all those barriers to give us new life. And church, what does that tell us about how we are to represent God's offer of new life in this world? You know, one of the things that has been consistent for me in my years of ministry is that I have consistently been accused of overemphasizing grace. But I am still convinced that our representation of grace is not scandalous enough because we still don't match what Jesus was up to. This woman's life was as messy as it was tragic, but Jesus met her right there in that mess to give her the hope of new life. Something else that jumps out at me in this story is how when Jesus puts his finger on the source of the pain, that was going on, she immediately starts talking about something else. <laughs> it's such a human thing. There's humor in that. Uh, you know. And the very best subject to distract attention from our own vulnerability is religion. Uh, you can't beat that one. That's great. So she starts talking about which mountain is the right mountain to worship God on. You know, The Samaritans had built a rival temple to, to Yahweh on a different mountain that they considered sacred. But Jesus brushes past all of that. Uh, he's just not going to let her hide there. He won't let a religious debate keep him away. And we realize then, too, something else about this, that this new life in God isn't hemmed in by religious boundaries. The lady says, you know, 
I was brought up believing this mountain was was God's mountain, and you Israelis see that mountain as the right one. And man, isn't this all familiar? I mean, don't we hear this kind of stuff all the time? Well, I was going to that church over there, but, you know, they were just so mean to me. And then I went to the Methodist church, but the pastor's wife was a gossip. And the Catholics say they're the only church. And the Pentecostals say they're the only ones with the Holy Spirit. The arguments are all the same. It's just the names get rearranged in the whole thing. I say this mountain, you say that mountain. You can't both be right, so maybe nobody's right, and maybe nothing really matters, and your interest in me is pointless. That's the subtler question underlying all of this. But Jesus makes it clear. Mountains aren't important, but you are. She was. All the debates about structure and form and even theological systems, all that stuff is secondary, if not irrelevant, to the main thing. And that is that God is seeking people who want a spiritual relationship with Him, informed by the truth of God's Spirit, not the systems that we construct around our beliefs. And and this is not to say that theology or religion is a bad thing. I mean, Jesus indicates God revealed Himself through the the the, the religion of the Jewish people, but but it has to remain in its place. It can't become the thing that supersedes everything else, supersedes what's most important in this. And the main point of God's kingdom coming, of heaven meeting earth, is that God becomes present anywhere and everywhere where we're willing to meet with Him. Religion is often set up as a way to, to keep people away from God, or at least keep the riffraff out, you know. The reason the lady's shocked that Jesus is talking to her is because that the holy men, the rabbis and the Pharisees had a very simple means of remaining holy in that environment. They just stayed away from everyone that they thought was unholy and stayed away from everything they thought would be corrupting. This was using religion as a way of trying to protect God's reputation in this. To have sat near her like Jesus did, to talk to her, to potentially drink from her container that she that she had touched that would have rendered a religious person unclean but god's grace has no interest in those kinds of boundaries jesus asks to share her cup he asks her for a drink he doesn't have a vessel she points that out he's asking for a drink from something that she owns and it doesn't change his holiness at all but it transforms her completely Who is protecting who in this? Who do we think we're trying to protect with this sort of thing? If we can allow anyone to get close to Jesus, Jesus is the one who does that transforming work. He'll he'll make it all new. The other thing that religion does, which we see in this story, is it gives people a place to hide where, where they don't have to honestly confront themselves. You know, a nice religious structure, I can hide back in here. This woman tried to hide behind an age old religious debate. And Jesus wasn't going to have any of it. And he makes it clear that now, since heaven has invaded earth through him, the only significant location is the heart. To honestly engage with God in our inner being as a real person. Flaws and all. Questions and all. Doubts and all. Anger and all. All of it. That's the temple. This messy glob of thumping in here. That's the temple. That's where God wants to come and set up shop and dwell with his people. He
He wants real people, not religious drones, not people who can say the right things at the right time and get out the right tone on a hallelujah somewhere. He wants real people with real problems who will honestly come to him and look to him for the help that he provides. So, you know, in one more attempt to dodge this exposure of her pain, she tries to put it all off in some vague future. Well, you know, Messiah's coming. I guess we'll just have to wait till he gets here and he'll figure this whole thing out. There's a lot in that. She's clearly indicating that he can't be you. So, <laughs> so we'll just have to wait till, till he shows up. But it's amazing how Jesus openly declares himself to her. He wasn't that open with Nicodemus, the religious leader. But here, to this outcast, out here, outside of town somewhere, man, he makes it crystal clear. I am. Using that covenant name in the Hebrew, yeah, I am the Messiah. He's identifying who is there at that well with her. Just then, <laughs> the disciples get back from town. I love that part of the story. You know, they got a sack of bean burritos. They're all set. They think they've done the good thing. And they look at the woman and they look at Jesus. And I, in my mind, it's hilarious. It's really quiet. Maybe they're, you know, <clears throat> somebody's <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. And, 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 and she, you know, sees this group of guys with their burritos and stuff. And she says, I'm just going to head on out of here. She leaves. It says that, she leaves the, the water jug behind. And that's an, a significant detail. Remember, John's very particular about what he adds into his gospel. There's something there that we're supposed to, to, to look at and, and contemplate. All through the conversation, she, like Nicodemus, had focused on temporal things. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, we have to have a new birth. And Nicodemus was going, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. He was thinking temporally, Jesus is speaking beyond that. In this case, in her case, he's talking about living water. Well, she's thinking, well, there's, there's no other spring around here. We've got a few cisterns or whatever, but there's nothing as good as this. This is the water. She wasn't seeing what it was. Jesus was trying to communicate something deeper, something spiritual. So by leaving her water jug behind, it's symbolic of her getting it of finally grasping what was eternally important in this whole scenario. The water is going to be there when I get back and I'm thirsty again, but this is something else. This is something life-changing that's here, that's presented to me. She runs into the town to the very people she was trying to avoid before, and suddenly it all becomes so clear. She's the one that God was going to use to reach the entire village of Sikar. She was the one. She was hiding out there. Nobody else would have known she was there except for Jesus. He saw her, he knew her, he recognized her plight, and he transformed her. Within the span of 30 verses, we witness the complete transformation of this woman's life. She goes from outcast and object of shame to the town rescuer in the span of a conversation with Jesus. I'm telling you, if we'll get people close to Jesus, we spend so much time trying to clean things up on the outside, trying to get everybody to look respectable. If we can get them to Jesus, let Jesus do what Jesus does, right? Because I'm telling you right now, I can't fix a soul. People say, if I could get, you know, so-and-so to come to church here, you know, if they could just come here. I can't help anyone. But if we can get them close to Jesus, I'm telling you, the world, <laughs> the horizons are wide open when a person comes close to him. And that's the last observation, though, I want to make from this story. And that is that 
A new life in God is the source of our meaning and our purpose. Back in chapter 2, Jesus transforms ordinary water into the life of the party. And here in this story, Jesus tells the woman that he actually has water to offer, that living water that when you drink from it, the thirst is quenched. He says, you drink from this well here, from Jacob's well. And you have to come back again and again because you get thirsty again. Because he was talking on, on different levels here. He was not just talking about the water there either. He was talking about the, the traditions that we set up, that we feel like provides us some sense of identity. He's letting her know there's a deeper identity for you in this. And, and, and the water that he offers, is it's fully satisfies because God moves in. This, this God-given water, it wells up in us, satisfying us continually and giving us something to offer to others, a hope for someone else. And just like most of the conversations John records, most people misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. She saw it on a surface level. You know, well, cool. I'd like some of this water, please. You know, then I won't have to come here anymore. And, you know, when we consider the time of day that she's there, we understand why she's thinking like this. There's more to her answer than the surface level. She doesn't want to come back to that well to risk being around the people who despise her. She's saying, I want a different life, is what she's saying in that. I I want to be released from my prison of imposed shame. And in that encounter with Jesus, as God's grace seeps past every boundary and barrier, she experiences this transforming power of his love, and she fulfills the very thing that he was describing to her. Her life wells up with meaning and purpose and value, and like a fountain of water, she gushes out hope to everybody in the village and gives the invitation, come and see this man who has revealed the true me. She becomes the first evangelist outside of Jesus' disciples. She uses that same phrase, come and see. The love of God is such a transformative power in our lives if we'll just embrace it and believe it. To embrace the possibilities that God knows all about us, all the elements that we think are fuel for shame, all the things that we so carefully hide from everyone else. God knows them all and it doesn't make him mad. He sees us and he loves us. He loves us without restraint, radically. And he has a purpose for all of us. His love, if we'll believe it and embrace it, will revolutionize our lives. I speak from experience on this. It'll fill our lives with meaning. We just have to embrace the possibility of it. The possibility that it's true. He loves you. He loves you. I can't even express it adequately. There are no words to express it. He loves you. His love radiates from his throne towards you. But so that's a challenge in this story as well. As the church, the representatives of this living water, we have to hold this example of Jesus up And consider how the church looks in comparison to his example. So who are the Samaritans in our world, in our lives? Who are the ones that we tend to reject or write off because of some boundary that we've created or maybe was passed down to us? Because of their politics or their nationality or personality or personal choices or struggles that maybe we don't relate to? 
How does our approach to them compare with Jesus? Do we emulate him and reveal a scandalous grace? Or do we just beat that same old drum of religious exclusion and moralism? Let's commit to stopping our return to the old wells of tradition that just leave us thirsty again. Let's tap in to that living water of God's spirit. Let's find new life in expanded relationship with Christ. Let's be shaped by this story. Let's embrace this amazing boundary breaking, barrier busting love of God and let it transform our lives and then let it spill out to the world around us. We can be examples of the very same love in the way that we love people in the world around us. Let's, let's embrace this. Let's look squarely at this portrait of God and ask ourselves, do my views about God match what he reveals about himself? Ask ourselves, am I willing to love as radically as he loves? Ask ourselves, am I willing to believe that he really loves me? Father, I pray for us right now. I just ask you, Lord, as we're here and in this moment, I ask you, Father, to to do that work in us that needs to be done, to awaken in us the reality of your love for us. Father, we presented ourselves before your word. And your word has opened up new horizons to us. Father, as an act of our will, we present ourselves to your spirit. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, come in and begin that work in us. Transform our lives, transform our thinking, transform us so that we have that meaning and purpose of sharing the hope that we found in you. Be with each of us here, Father, today. Lead us and guide us into the life that you intended. Awaken in us, Father, the wonder of your love for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we'll close with a song. Right on? Every time I tried to make it on my own Every time I tried to stand and start to fall All those lonely roads that I've traveled on There was Jesus
shadow of the alley. about this morning and i know we kept you long and stuff so we'll get into our final blessing but i want to remind you to go back and visit with the the ministry there at humble house it's a wonderful thing that they're doing and we want to really consider how we can support and partner with them in that but let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out of here may you see the lord's goodness in the land of the living may the lord hold you steady and still in jesus christ hold firm take heart in his love There is hope for you. Go in peace, you children of God.